welcome everybody and thank you so much for coming to uh, this celebration of Tess's wonderful new book, um, Wild Policy, Indigeneity and the Unruly Logics of Intervention. Uh, first though, I want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land I'm privileged to be. I pay respects to their knowledge, their leaders past, present and emerging, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, several weeks ago, I was stuck. Uh, the question of how to conduct a research project heavily depended on fieldwork when the field was closed kept me going around and around. I emailed Tess, help, I need your book right now. And she replied pretty quickly with her corrected proofs. I've said that it's an enthralling read, uh, an adjective not normally associated with academic writing. I read it cover to cover or <laughs> on the um, pieces of paper um, in two days, taking copious notes. There are a number of elements that make it enthralling. Tess structures a book in quite a unique way with five interludes between each chapter. In these interludes, uh, she talks with and learns from John Singer, uh, an Anagu leader of the NAM. Uh, Ampa Health Centre, uh, which is one of the oldest and um, the biggest in the APY lands. As Tess writes, when I first stammered out my rough proposal based vaguely on what I did not want to do, having no precise outline, he took a punt. Every year since, I've learned something new. Most of all, I've learned about perseverance and courage where there could be so easily defeat or rage. What makes uh, this book so special is that Tess gives us that gift of learning. She draws on years of close ethnographic encounters and deep dives into archives. And her writing brings home all those lessons. As she says of the military extractive economy that is Australia, I eat the mine all the time. I consume little that has not been derived through long, complicated networks of extraction and logistics. Now, I could go on and on, but we have a wonderful panel of, um, who will shed more light on Tessa's great achievement. Um, however, before I introduce them, uh, I wanted to ask Tess a question as a provocation. Tess, you say at some point this was the book that refused to be written. What happened? Because written, it did get done. <laughs> Thanks so much, Elspeth. And I'd also like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land, um, the Gadigal, the Larrakia, the land where I come from, and also the Anangu Pitindara, um, whose, yes, voices really provide a spine as showing the continuity editing that Indigenous leaders do in amongst all this kind of um, nonsense that uh, government interventions of assorted kinds and services um, throw at them every single day, day in, day out, every single year, year in, year out. This book was hard to write because I wanted it to feel as if, um, for the swimmers in the room, the, the, the feeling that you have when you're fit for swimming should be swimming downhill. I wanted the effect of reading it to be reading downhill. But I was dealing with subject matter, which is hard to narrate. 
it's hard to narrate because I'm talking about reports or bits of policy or things that are underground or things not being built or um, details that actually snag and matter and details that nonetheless are mundane and uh, are not exciting. So how do you create something that is downhill to read but is nonetheless holding attention to things you, you ordinarily don't want to engage with? And some of these things are designed so that you don't want to engage with them, like, like you know, an 18,000-page town camp report has been deliberately written so that people don't engage with it, an overabundance of detail so that you get smothered. Uh, so I was grappling with all of those things and didn't really know how to do it. <laughs> so it was a long time at the drawing board. Well, I do remember also it was a heavy-duty um, summer a couple of summers ago when you were just writing, writing, writing. Um, now, I'm going to introduce um, all of our panellists together, I think. Uh, first, we have uh, Professor Heidi Norman. Uh, Heidi is a leading Australian researcher in the field of Aboriginal political history. Her research sits in the field of history and draws on cognate disciplines of anthropology, political economy, cultural studies, and political theory. Uh, she's garnered many awards for her groundbreaking research. She's from the Gomorrah Nation in northwestern New South Wales, and we found out that she is an ocean swimmer as well. Uh, after Heidi, we have David Ritter, who is the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, where he's worked since 2012. He's also worked as a lawyer with a particular focus on native title and is the author of several books. Thank you. Um, Professor Jacqueline Troy is a leading linguist and author of the outstanding book, The Sydney Language. Uh, she currently has two ARC discovery projects, one on the history of Aboriginal missions and reserves in Eastern Australia and the history of Aboriginal people who were not institutionalised. The other is the practice of corroboree by Aboriginal people in the so-called assimilation period of the mid-20th century. Um, she has um, done great work on um, developing and extending Indigenous research methodologies. Her country is the uh, Nar um, Naraju of the Snowy Mountains and as well as being a keen horsewoman she managed to squeeze in a little bit of time as the director of Sydney's Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander research <laughs> which is like 200% of a job and um, finally we have Gassan Hajj Gassan is Professor of Anthropology and Social Theory at the University of Melbourne where he was Previously, the future generation professor, which I always loved that title, but did they take it away from you? <laughs> uh, Gassan is globally renowned as a major resource for understanding racism and an articulate um, irritant across many genres to dominant forms of thinking and speaking that avoid the quotidian experiences of those lives that are deformed and shaped like um, by racism. And he too is a keen ocean swimmer. So um, each of our panelists will talk for about 10 minutes um, and then we will proceed to a um, Q&A 
session afterwards. Uh, so if um, Professor Norman, you'd like to start, that'd be fabulous. Thank you, Elspeth. Thank you for your welcome and um, acknowledgement of country. And congratulations to you, Tess, on, um, on your beautiful work. Thank you. I've prepared a rather scintillating PowerPoint, so I'm going to share my screen. So this is, I thought I'd, I'd go through some of, um, you know, four key points. What I'm obviously missing is the final chapter of Tess's, from Tess's work, um, Wild Policy, new book. And, um, and that, that final chapter is a manifesto of sorts. So I'm going to leave that because I think uh, some of our other speakers will pick that up and I, I, you know, I sort of anticipate, Tess, that you will, you will speak to the, your manifesto as well. So um, let me just, hopefully, I will move through, through some of these points as I've sort of tried to organise them. But if I don't, if there's some sort of incoherence or... Um, disruption, I will attribute that to the kind of ideas that Tess has been introducing in her work and the methodology she poses, which is a really an effort to be disruptive and, um, mm. and to think differently, to offer a new method and uh, a, um, a new method and a conceptual model for tracking the shape-shifting trickster that is social policy, as she alludes to. So here are some of the concepts that I that I pulled out of the work. And so this is the, the first sort of thing I'm going to talk about. One is the concepts. Then I thought um, I'd reflect on what the sort of provocations test covers and then think about how these, this work challenged me to think differently about the, that work I wrote about the, um, the history of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act. And in a, in one of the reasons I was going to pick up on that work in particular is because I think what Tess is getting to in this is some of the ways that I approached policy, if you like, or, you know, stat statutory law was really informed by the governmentality literature. And I don't know that that's... I think Tess says that's an inadequate way to, um, with reference to um, Lattice and Barry Morris's work. Um, I think Tess is trying to... Trying to, uh, is offering a new way to think about policy and the, you know, the techniques and apparatus of the state as something um, uh, different. And so here are some of the ideas that she, the concepts, if you like, that she offers us to think about policy. So as I said, wild policy, it's the title of the book. And what I take from Tessa's work is that what Tess says is that wild policy stakes a claim for a new method and conceptual model for tracking the shape-shifting trickster that is social policy. So Tess is saying that, the, you know, social policy isn't a technical, um, an observable, uh, like a, a grippable kind of force. It's something that, 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 um, that moves and changes and um, um, it's in response to a host of forces Second term, uh, I don't think my list is exhaustive, but these are some of the kind of key ideas that I picked up. So uh, it's the idea of political ecology to describe social policy. And she says that this is a figurative framing of policy artefacts and policy ambience. So policy artefacts, you know, all those, those um, technical reports, the legislation, the reviews, they're, as I understand it from Tessa's work, they're what we might think of as policy artefacts. They're the sort of things that if you don't have a kind of nerdy application, they will just bore you absolutely stupid. But these are, in fact, the, you know, the, these are the artefacts that make up the policy ecology. 
And she says of ecology that it's a, a useful term because it has cross-disciplinary application, say in sciences, it's an organism and their environment. In the political sciences, it's a relation between people and institutions. And this is a bit of a bold claim, but for anthropologists, it's a relation between all of these. And that is the purpose of ethnography. And there, I'll just stop for a moment and pick up on this. And um, what, uh, it's slightly unrelated, but to the side there, it's a picture. Um, uh, it, there, that's a pic, I'm in the shadow there. My legs aren't that big, in fact. Um, but um, it's, a, it's a picture of um, uh, when Gillian Cowlishaw and I travelled a couple of years up to the, the southern end of Arnhem Land to a place, Mount Katz, outstation from Bullman. And I mentioned Gillian because Gillian um, was Tess's supervisor and at a later time, mine as well. So Gillian's intellectual um, legacy is imprinted on both of us, I think. And certainly that includes an abiding um, affection for ethnography to explain the world around us as a, as a methodology, as a, as a lens. And that's really what comes up here is that policy is not a, um, you know, a technical apparatus of the state. It's something, you know, that, 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 that is best understood and best unpacked and interrogated through um, this kind of detailed ethnography. And in the ethnography, what, um, what Tess elaborates is that it's a field, field work and communication. So it's more than just taking field sites or just taking policy and unpacking it in a chronological way, which is probably what I have done in the past, but rather thinking about um, these field sites and modes of communication in, in, in ways that weave them all together, um, that, that is a weaving process. I think that's the sort of approach that Tess has taken. And that in part is, allows a story of policy as feral, um, of policy actors as, comp, you know, um, that within the, within the policy cycle, that there are actors at different points. And one of those actors, um, if I've got this right, Tess refers to as killjoys. And I think the killjoys are those, are the people who present obstacles, who point out that, you know, houses built of those sort of materials as they have done in the past at places like Brood Island, will decay, rot, collapse within years. And yet, um, for, for, um, as Tess elaborates in the book, will be, you know, is un unfortunately proceeded with because um, of a, you know, a political cycle, media intensity, of a desire on the part of bureaucrats and politicians to get things done. And so we have this kind of um, failing outcomes on the ground um, and the killjoys, perhaps they might be like sort of local level whistleblowers who are actually get deliberately elided from the conversations um, in order to allow this kind of quite um, crazy implementation of policy to, to take place. Um, and... Um, so these killjoys, they might also, they point out the failings of an idea and they give voice to the hauntology. So hauntology is, a, is an important concept that, um, that, that Tess offers us as, an, as a um, conceptual way to uh, think about policy and to interrogate policy. So hauntology in the work is defined as the deeply saturated effects of past policies 
enduring and shaping conditions in the present, soaking into ambient surroundings and carried, carried physically. So she also, some other couple of points, I think that are conceptual, that are really useful. And um, I think I'll, I'll read the book, read this work again and think about um, how these ideas uh, might be, how these concepts might be taken up more actively. So there's a policy biography. You know, again, I think it's rather than taking the policy process as a technical kind of um, technical linear sort of activity, but rather thinking about it as something that isn't, you know, has an ecology and that has a story to, that there is a story within that. And then Tess also refers to incoherence of policy. And then within, I should have put this up here actually, within that, you know, the, the characters, the people who populate the sort of at various stages of policy, we, I've mentioned the killjoys and another sort of tier at a more local grounded level is a policy brokers or policy translators is what, um, what Tess introduces us to. And I think these are really powerful concepts that um, if we take these up seriously, could provide us with new ways to understand policy um, that, um, in, you know, rather than being locked into this, I think on one hand, this uh, notion of the perpetual optimism of policy and um, or or the the fatigue and disappointment of policy failings. I think um, if we what Tess offers us is a way to analyse and interrogate policy. Um, she she raises quite a few provocations. Just let me check. Am I going all right for time? Uh, okay, I'm up. My time's up. Can't be. That can't possibly be right. So I'll just say just a couple more um, points. I think some of the key things that I took from Tessa's work, and I looked for this um, particular reference, she, she refers to policies as nested propositions. She wants to interrupt settler colonial habit of accounting for Indigenous issues in isolation, subvert the policy, the power of policy teleology. But at the end of this, I think what she says is, yes, there can be good policy and she stays with the state. So she says that it is possible for the state, um, for, the, for there to be good policy and that can be realised through the state. And I think that that's an interesting idea because we are also introduced to the military extractive political economy and um, militarised social policy. So that's particularly in the relation to the case study on manganese, if I've got that right, on Groot. And I think what, what um, I'm just going to flick through here, what I, what I think Tess highlights is a kind of naivety that inflects Aboriginal social policy. And in a way that's captured in the closing the gap and even in this idea of we know best in terms of a disruption of the government, government level top-down implement, implementation or power over communities in relation to power that we know best. And I think what Tess is saying is that it's actually a far more complex and it's linked up with global military capitalism and land is intrinsic to that. So um, I think, you know, in this work, Tess offers less a critique of issues of power and Aboriginal power within the policy formulation, although that is a factor, but much more macro level phenomenon of, um, of how the government deals with Aboriginal land and Aboriginal land as a basis of of the Aboriginal social policy dilemma. Um, 
And so within that macro story, there's also a, a very local level um, incoherence and disruption and anarchy and wildness that occupies these sites of negotiation. So that, that's it for me. Thank you. Great work, Tess. I've really enjoyed reading it. I look forward to engaging with the work um, in, into the future. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Heidi. That was fantastic. Um, and next we have uh, David Ritter. Thanks, Elspeth. Um, look, I just want to start by saying um, just what a fan I am of this book. Um, I, like I just, I just want to do a bit of a sort of um, trumpet blurt about how wonderful it, it is. And I don't come to this book from the Academy. Um, I'm, I'm not someone who has an academic post. And so I did pick up an academic book, um, which I'm not reading so many of uh, in my um, day job now, with some trepidation. And it's just an extraordinary piece of work. Um, it is it is richly humane. It is deeply compassionate. It is um, political, but in not the sort of um, tedious partisan way that, that one finds splashed across the papers every day. Um, it is not romantic, but nonetheless hopeful. Uh, it is it's a wonderful book, and the, the playfulness with form. Um, uh, is 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 not just it's not sort of done for the sake of it, but it it does or did for for this reader anyway, just bring bring out in a truly evocative way um, the unruly and uh, 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 chaotic nature of of policy, um, contrary to the sort of uh, mythology of, of policy being a coherent and liberal and rational enterprise. Um, it is through its specificity. It is um, so non-parochial. Um, uh, it is attached to the, the great debates across the world, um, and its its uh, thick description of um, uh, of the multivalence nature of racism is just you know well to this to this white fellow anyway um an extraordinarily powerful read so look i just want to start with a bit of a blurt advertorial for just how terrific i, I uh, found the book um so thank you thank you tess for writing it um I also, I suppose, um, found the book to be deeply uh, nostalgic. So um, I was a native title lawyer until 2006. Um, that's how I would have described myself um, professionally when, when interacting with people. And um, I, I realise now, having read this book, that what I would have aspired to be in that context, um, I now know to be an, as an institutional killjoy. Um, which was essentially to work against the grain um, and to not accept the imposed categories. If I, if I understand the, the uh, concept as uh, Tess has explained it within wild policy. And um, I, the nostalgia brought, brought to light a set of things that I really haven't thought about for some time. So just to use one example of, of how I think the, the, the thinking in wild policy captures that whole uh, part of um, uh, uh, the world of um, uh, uh, what was happening there. Um, the National Native Title Tribunal was a body that was established essentially to um, recognise uh, Indigenous rights in land following the Mabo decision. But after some years of political comings and goings, um, the way the mandate of the tribunal was interpreted 
um, it measured its uh, progress, it measured its performance by the number of mining titles that it was granting. So you had a body that was set up for the recognition of Indigenous title that ended up measuring its productivity by the number of titles that uh, were making it through that were the opposite of, of Indigenous title, that were the, the titles of the settler state. And um, when uh, Indigenous groups challenged the, the, um, the justice of this, um, this was really seen as, as not playing ball because of the policy framework. Um, when uh, their lawyers were um, took on this policy um, interpretation as, as being uh, patently nonsensical and patently not what the Act was intended uh, to do, um, the, the, the description that is provided in Tess's book for, for how uh, that work um, by, the, by those lawyers and anthropologists and, and others was regarded, um, I just I think is absolutely spot on. So it, reading the book, uh, I guess, made me feel a sense of, of deep nostalgia. And I was struck too by the incredible power of the concept of, um, of policy uh, being able to haunt uh, and uh, maintaining this kind of uh, spectral force. Um, the way in which it is inscribed on individual bodies, the way in which policy becomes inscribed in uh, physical environments uh, long after um, uh, the actual policy may have had its use-by date in um, official, um, uh, official circles. And um, to give a, a you know, extraordinarily visceral example of this, um, uh, I'm deeply familiar with the background to the destruction of the um, Jokin Gorge uh, caves uh, in the Pilbara um, uh, not so long ago, for which I see just today the, the global CEO of Rio Tinto is now uh, having to or has agreed to resign from his position. Um, the sense in which that outcome is... Uh, a consequence of policy formulations of some time ago um, is very is brought to life by the kind of analytical framework uh, that is posed um, uh, so persuasively. I think um, I think by uh, by Tess. The third thing I want to sort of mention, having sort of the first being the just sort of blurt about um, just how much I enjoyed the book, and the second being just just um, uh, quite how nostalgic it, uh, 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 it made me feel. Um, and I suppose there's a, there's a haunting in that biography of things as, as well. Um, is the way, the very subtle way in which Tess handles the question of climate change. Now, I don't, I don't um, begin to believe that every book and every film and every cartoon strip and every song um, uh, needs to be about climate change uh, uh, or perhaps even put more broadly, the, the state of ecological crisis that, that we now find ourselves in. But nonetheless, it is the, um, it is the omni condition. Um, it does permeate all that we do. Um, if we cannot uh, restrain uh, the um, environmental crisis, if we cannot tackle climate change, um, uh, then everything else more or less falls away because having a safe and livable planet is the, the precondition to, uh, to doing anything else we want to do, um, including to establish that um, uh, earth capable of nurturing life in all of its uh, magnificent diversity far into the future, which I hope will be the, um, the outcome of, of all of this. 
Um, the way in which um, Tess handles it is enormously uh, subtle. She, she brings uh, the reality of severe climate damage and the climate emergency into the text on a number of occasions. And uh, she manages to do so in a way that both highlights the omnipresence of the climate crisis, but also reveals the uh, extent uh, to which it is absent in the day-to-day. And to achieve that balance, um, I think, is no mean feat and really does um, set an example for how um, the, the breadth of climate change, uh, the significance of climate change can be woven into works that are not uh, ostensibly about uh, climate change. And I suppose my, my fourth and final thing that I want to say about this um, uh, remarkable book is that... Um, so my day job is as Chief Executive Officer of, of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. And, and, and this, uh, although this is not a, a campaign book and is not a book about, you know, how to shift an issue, it, it has given me pause to think very deeply about how I prosecute my work now. Um, I, I suppose probably most people have, have at least heard of Greenpeace. The, the, the role of Greenpeace is to shift power um, to uh, enable um, environmental uh, solutions. Um, it is, the book has given me a particular appreciation for Greenpeace's radical independence that we never have or will accept money from any government or any business ever. So it means some of those uh, policy uh, entanglements that are so evocatively described uh, in the book don't confront me now on a day-to-day basis in the way that they certainly did um, back in the days of working um, for a land council. But nonetheless, if you if you take the life and the obligations of a campaigner, we are a campaigning organisation, then you are seeking albeit with all humility and with love as your foundation, you are seeking to shift um, patterns of behaviour. And uh, the the way in which uh, Tess's book engages with the consequence of of strategy playing out, um, the way in which it engages with uh, the, the layering of things really is a, a challenge to the kind of, um, uh, I want to call it the almost essential hubris of the political actor, that if you cannot have the, the, um, the, the, the boldness to have a go, essentially you can't do the work. And maybe what I'm trying to get at is that this, this book is, is a wonderful reminder um, to always be humble in, in, that, in that exercise. Um, If we are indeed to shift um, from what we are, we are stuck under in Australia now, which again, the, the, the overarching system is, is um, so well uh, uh, evoked in Tessa's book, if we are to escape from that, from what I think we can call the fossil fuel order, uh, to make a very different world, a clean energy order, um, uh, an order that is underpinned by justice and is underpinned by decency and is underpinned by a love of nature, then surely one of the foundational wisdoms to that new order must be the kind of rich attentiveness to place, to specificity, 
to embeddedness, which uh, is is just the abiding sense that you are left with um, from uh, reading Tess's book. Um, and maybe the final thing I'll just say by word of appreciation, um, I, I'm not a student of anthropology, but I'll, the works of Gillian Cowlishaw were also deeply influential um, on this particular uh, former uh, recovering lawyer when I was in my former life. So I also just want to join the chorus of appreciation for um, Gillian uh, Cowlishaw's work. Um, thanks. Uh, thank you, David. And uh, now Jacqueline, please. I would just like to build a bit on what's already been said. First of all, to say that it's wonderful to see ethnography as a technique laid over the chaos that is so-called policy around Indigenous everything, not only in Australia, but internationally. I, um, when I picked up this book, and I'm a linguist anthropologist, so um, I, I really understand the technique and have really enjoyed reading um, the artefacts descriptions of the elements that contribute to uh, I guess the the wild world that is policy I really like that idea I, I love that description of policy um, as something that is um, uncontrollable um, in some ways goes off in its own direction um, I often have thought uh, Heidi would remember we were asked to comment on language policy in Australia as the New South Wales government decided that it would refresh its language policy that I had helped write that ended up nowhere um, that was supposed to feed into the national language policy which also if you do a search online never really existed so there are a lot of um, myths there's myth making around policy as well that I think may be an interesting continuation of this discussion about policy as something wild and to be studied, the ethnography of the myths around policy. But this piece right at the beginning where um, Tess talks about um, the, the exhaustion on page three in the first interlude, this exhaustion that John observes in the people that he has worked with in the APY lands and elsewhere, um, and how having gone in to bat with governments about their view of what policy would be and could be for them and for their communities over many, many years, you know, the, the 20th century was a, a period of policy making for Aboriginal people that it's really hard to know actually in the end what the policies really were, except that in the end, they were incredibly destructive. And this kind of exhaustion that I see also in communities now as a result of policy never being resolved as anything particularly they could get their, their hands on. You know, Aboriginal people have spent tens of thousands of years developing complex ways to handle policy in community. Our languages are the most complex in the world. This is because we have very micro ways of talking about absolutely everything, including the colour of the dot you paint around your face if you're painting up for a cockatoo dreaming dance. You know, these are people who know how to be specific and what are looking for specifics, but end up having all that specificity taken away from them by people who are like, you know, bulls in china shops, really, who think that they're being very specific. So 
I love that. I, I did feel exhausted in reading this book and I had to take a back up a mountain and sit on a rock to, um, to enjoy it. I sat looking out on country, on Nunawal country, on, on Yuma from Canberra, Nunawal country, um, right next door to my country, the Snowy Mountains, which I can look across to, and thanks to current government policy, can't bloody get to. Um, we'd like to blame it on the Rona, but it's not the Rona, it's government policy. And what kind of policy? I mean, what is the policy around Rona, the COVID environment? We're all stuck on this bloody island um, and people still get sick and a whole lot of things are happening that shouldn't happen. So I, I feel very frustrated endlessly. And I think there's that frustration as, as Tess looks at all the, the artefacts of policy through the book. Um, so I then um, was looking at... Um, the way, you know, this comment continuing on in that first interlude on page eight, reversing the usual descriptions of how Aboriginal people are thwarted by policy rationalities and enumerative impulse. It is the irrationality and anarchic nature of policy that makes John wary of wasting his time with pursuits that don't yield an evidenced outcome. There's so much policy in Australia and I've handled lots of different kinds of policies from native title to land rights to language policies that actually in the end have done very little. It would have been simpler to simply just bundle up a bunch of money, give it to the local community and tell them to make their own local policy as they have been doing for tens of thousands of years, um, which would be perhaps more successful. Um, my mother often says to me as we try to develop I guess, some kind of interface between being Narugu and what it takes to engage with our own country and the policies that now manage our countries um, all over the Snowy Mountains. And she said, we never used to have organisations, incorporated bodies. Now it takes to even begin to engage with the policy in Australia as an Aboriginal person, you've got to be incorporated, an incorporated body. It's not good enough just to be an Aboriginal body, a Narugu body. I've recently had um, national parks preside over whether or not I could talk to anyone about the Snowy Mountains um, because somehow they have a list of who it is that they should talk to. Um, and sadly, most of those people are not people who even like the snow. And as this piece of filming was being done right up at the top of the high country where I spend quite a lot of time and we still even have a ski club, um, I probably know a little bit more about it. But the policy is that you go and talk to somebody who is not actually from that part of the high country, but they're still snowy mountains people. I, I give them that and they're Narugu. But, you know, this is it. We're even, even the very artefacts of who we are, the anthropologising about us is all organised around a range of policies at the macro and micro level. I do like that medium micro. I think, uh, what's it? The macro or something that you came up with, Tess. I think that's great. I love the manifesto and I'm going to really study it and I think it may become my new manifesto and I'm going to share it with people who are in an equally hideous policy situation between Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, a place called North Waziristan, which is magnificent and beautiful, but um, most people won't go there. Um, Tess will be coming with me if you haven't already been there. Yes, good. And we can go and deliver them a, a piece on how to make local 
community policy um, using their Jiriga system, which looks remarkably like our traditional Aboriginal decision-making systems as well. Um, I like this step two on page 160 I've tagged. I'm going to definitely interrogate this one. Relieve the burden of being the otherwise. Yeah, sick of being the otherwise, actually. Um, the efforts to re required to stabilise wild policy unfurlings simply to extract policy benefits or to soften further damage are not minor. Acts of perseverance are exacting. They wear people down and attempting them as an isolated individual is particularly wearisome. So I'm going to take this manifesto and with a whole bunch of international Indigenous people, see if we can work it up into some kind of international response um, as I'm about to do an evaluation of the International Year of Indigenous Languages, um, another policy, non-policy um, year with no money to back it either. Um, and I think this is a really good, a really good um, methodology for unpacking a whole lot of what I would call non-policy. So thank you, Thank you, right. Jackie. Sorry, and I'm so here guess. for you. <laughs> just got to yell, sorry. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Jackie. Um, and uh, finally, but not last or whatever, um, Gassan, please. Uh, yes, I, I was uh, saying that I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Uh, and, uh, particularly in relation to the Black Life uh, Matters uh, seminar I was doing uh, yesterday. I also want to acknowledge uh, specifically uh, all the people who have died in uh, custody, uh, the Indigenous people who have died in custody. And uh, I like always to think of them when I'm thinking uh, about Indigenous matters. At, uh, this book is, I'll join the chorus by uh, saying that it is an unbelievable uh, achievement. Uh, I will use a lot of superlatives and I'm not inclined to use them just for the sake of it. It is uh, a book that deserves them. Uh, it's a book that engages in uh, incredible ethnography. I'll come to say why it is an incredible ethnography. But uh, at the same time, you know, uh, you have to say that uh, a lot of people can do incredible ethnography, but the question of writing the ethnography after you've done an incredible ethnography doesn't necessarily come out as great as the ethnography. Uh, and so what's, what's amazing about this, uh, this book is that it is an amazing piece of writing uh, that uh, brings out the complexity of what the test has been, has been doing. It's a generous book uh, that recognizes so many colleagues uh, that the uh, test has worked with. Uh, quite a few have mentioned Jill and Kalashaw, but of course there's uh, Beth, Bobinelli, uh, uh, sort of like very present. It's a very theoretical uh, book that brings out a lot of theories uh, from Sarah Ahmed's uh, Killjoy to, 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 to Stenger's uh, Mezzo to uh, uh, but uh, also there's the, 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 uh, these uh, theoretical concepts 
are used in an exceptionally creative way, not just kind of like to drop a theory. They actually open up uh, a perspective uh, and uh, test introduces them very pedagogically and it helps you see new things with uh, the concepts uh, that you use. So along all these lines, I really enjoyed so much uh, reading this book. I want to dwell on a couple of things uh, that I found particularly uh, innovative and that uh, I think uh, any reader will 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 really uh, sort of like benefit from uh, an encounter with with what Tess is trying to do here. First of all, uh, there is a question of uh, thinking policy uh, as culture. Uh, you know, I mean, like, uh, Tess probably didn't use culture, but uh, she used uh, milieu, ambiance. Uh, she talks about the fact that uh, this, this, uh, this uh, policy is diffused uh, in, in reality. People have various relations to it as it is diffused. It shapes, it creates, but also Tess talks about it as a particular form of inheritance. Uh, so, so, so we inherit, so uh, reality itself inherits uh, various policies and in a way policy sediments itself uh, in uh, reality. And part of the sedimentation is linked to what she calls uh, home policy, that is uh, part of what is inherited uh, haunts uh, the sedimentation and uh, the reality. So you have an amazing conception of policy, uh, not just as positioned in the process of its production, but in the process of its circulation uh, across uh, numbers of generations and how the very bodies that exist today and the very social bodies and the very landscape, all of it is uh, infused, shaped and has some relation or another with policy without being saturated by policy. And that's another important uh, distinction because there's always a space for something else uh, which makes for uh, the richness of the ethnography. But I think that itself is a remarkable achievement, I, I like to say, but that's not where the most remarkable achievement is uh, as far as I'm concerned because that policy as an ambiance, as escape, what is captured in it is something exceptionally, exceptionally difficult, I think. Uh, you know, uh, many theoreticians uh, have reflected on the fact that, uh, if you like, capitalist modernity uh, was still Hegelian in the sense that it believed that contradictions could be resolved and could be transcendent and people adopted this idea that if you face a contradiction you transcend it or you try to transcend it and you find the way it creates uh, an antithesis and etc and you move with it and that today in post post modern if you like capitalism uh, we are in a place where contradictions are no longer thought of as hegelian at least uh, that Contradictions are there to stay. They will not be resolved or transcended. Uh, 
Now, the idea that contradictions are not resolved or transcendent has been present. But what is unique about this book is that it takes the space where contradictions do not and cannot be resolved as the space of ethnography. And it dwells in that space. It dwells in a space where nothing can be resolved. And I think dwell contradictory space and doing ethnography in this contradictory space is truly uh, remarkable. The core contradiction is a contradiction between a colonial state is an extractor state. I think this contradiction is enormous because the extractor state is a colonial state that deals with indigenous people as colonized subjects oppressed by the nation through the state. While on the other, the social policy state is a social, is a state that deals with indigenous people as citizens, as marginalized citizens within the state. So on one hand, the colonial state is, is the vehicle of the oppression of indigenous people by the nation. And on the other, it's providing them a social policy as marginalized citizens within the nation. And this unresolvable contradiction permeates the policy, it seems to me, and this is where, where uh, Tess dwells and sees the variety of fragmented, almost sort of like uh, schizoid modalities of existence of, uh, of uh, policy. I found um, I have been working uh, for, for a while on a book project and a writing project, which is on decay. And uh, so I've been sensitized to decay and as concept. And, and I was uh, very attracted how much question the fraught decay pervades uh, as the ethnography uh, in the book. But it, uh, that's interestingly linked, I think, to that contradictory space uh, that uh, Tess is, is this. In one way, uh, the colonial state is a uh, producer of decay. Uh, on the other, uh, the social policy state is, a sta is supposed to be providing maintenance to stop decay. And uh, uh, and uh, even, even at the level of the body, the social policy state is supposed to be a state of maintenance. So that contradiction between a state that actually accelerates decay and a state that is normally trying to slow decay, it permeates the landscape and we end up with all these rotting landscapes, rotting social policies, rotting bodies even. Uh, and I think that's wonderfully, uh, wonderfully captured. I finish by just adding one last thing, which I think is uh, particularly, uh, I enjoy it particularly uh, at the end of the book. I mean, the book is amazing because it takes you uh, from sort of like housing policy being implemented and very down to earth 
to the totally sort of like and genuinely kind of like uh, mind-blowing carving uh, filmmaking uh, to very 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 down-to-earth manifesto about what should be really sort of like expected of policy. So I said it's kind of like at the many levels at which uh, the book operates is, is incredible uh, in this sense. But what I found amazing and also Tess doesn't use the word, but she actually brings into uh, the literature on settler colonialism the question of imperialism. She didn't use the term imperialism, she used militarization. But in fact, what she is describing is what we used to call imperialism. That is, and it brought home to me how much the studying of settler colonialism locks you in a nationalist framework or national framework. That is, you think of the settler colonialism as just something happening within the nation, while in fact, uh, Tess invites us to think of it as a geopolitical formation that is part of an imperialist project supported by militarized apparatus. And this, I think, is yet another incredibly open uh, aspect. Uh, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Gisan, and thank you all of our panellists. Firstly, thank you to every single one of you for um, these very generous readings um, and for forgiving me for <laughs> that oscillation between the micro details and the things that I am also enchanted by, you know, really um, humble things like the beauty of somebody who cares so much for gravel um, or you know, um, ha all these people out there who are doing repair work, who are intervening and who are sort of becoming um, in many ways the sacrificial objects of this rapacious policy regime which doesn't need to be got done well or done right. And um, Libby Porter, I think she's on on this stream, but um, she started with a reading group and she said she came across my sentence where I said pretty much, you know what, the reason why Indigenous social policy doesn't need to be done right is there is no greater dependency on getting it right. And she pushed, she said she pushed the desk away, pushed her chair away from the desk and said, well, fuck because it was like a carpet fall from underneath the feet of what we're all kind of trying to do, improve the world. And while I don't want to leave people with a sense of despair, and I'm so grateful for everybody picking up that, actually, you know, I do find in all of this, because it's so distributed, it can be otherwise. Like it's, it's, it's so networked, it's so um, omnipresent, that of course that means it's open to being manipulated in different directions. So it just stands to physical reason. But um, I do think that we also need to understand the formidable size of this thing that Indigenous people have been up against. Like not to minimise that and, and not to be romantic about their resilience. So 
I tried to control a lot of rage in this book whilst I was grappling with everything on behalf of what I think I now understand better. So I really appreciate that you've picked up on, all of you have picked up on different parts of that. Um, I'm really grateful for it. And yes, uh, I, I want to think with Gassan um, as well into thinking about rot, decay and maintenance as being these tensions. I think that's right. I think there's a kind of a... Um, these these broke living with the, my other way of framing it, which I've been working on with Liam Greeley and Kirsty Howie, is to think about what it is to live with broken things, mm. um, and and what it, what that takes to constantly be living with broken things. And infrastructure is a really good mechanism to make you come come to grips with the fact that um, entropy is the second law of thermodynamics for a reason. Like things tend, trend towards decay um, and disorder. That's the natural state of things is to not be in a neat arsenal, um, but to be otherwise. And finally, Gassan, thank you too for reminding me that um, imperialism is a different way of thinking about militarisation. The reason why I didn't use that term is precisely because the natural date stamping of those terms the imperial also lends itself to a past tense almost immediately it's heard. And so if you're trying to hijack the power of these words and also limit the number of words that you use, um, you would find yourself having to clear the ground to retrieve the word imperialism to do the work that you want it to do. Um, when it's like, no, 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 let's just pull over that problem and, and, and come up with something equally accurate. Yeah. Tessie, um, there's a question from Olson Hamilton-Smith. Olsie. Uh, from Melbourne. Um, whoops, where's it gone? Um, the manifesto has been re referenced several times. How did you come to develop it and how can people apply concepts from it to their fields within and beyond academe? Yeah. Oh, a, simple set, a simple question for our first um, question <laughs> from Olson Hamilton-Smith. Thank you very much. Um, how did I come to it? Firstly, I wanted to represent my ethnography. So I had been doing this ethnography with this ambitious task of answering the question, can there be good policy in regional and remote Australia? A good, simple, honest, um, yeoman question. <laughs> and what I also tried to do was do the anthropologist from Mars task, watch myself searching and prodding that question and trying to come up with the answer and understand what it was that I was looking at um, and to refuse the techniques that are already given to you if you approach policy, which is to describe policy, to put it simply with a beginning, a middle and an end and to say, in what ways it was done well, and here's our recommendations for improve, improvement, which naturally gives it a nice little piece of closure. So I just wanted to do my ethnography, but I kept finding when I represented the work, when I would stand at a lectern and start talking, that the first half or three quarters of any time I had available to me, I would have to clear the grounds for what I wasn't doing. 
you know, here's what I mean by policy and here's what I mean when we're doing anthropology of policy. I'm not doing evaluation and so blah, blah, blah. Like, and then I realised that if I um, wanted to get past the roadblocks, I needed to confront the roadblocks and just say, here's another way of looking at it and now can we get to my ethnography? So that's, that's, um, well, that was, that's also what stalled me because I didn't know what the other way was. I didn't have terms and I realised I needed to introduce some terms. Um, so I came up with a framework. Ways of understanding policy as black letter, things with proper nouns, I called artefactual policy. And it can look like something like that, usually in black and white, more like that. <laughs> um, and that artefactual thinking reduces you to thinking about policy as having a, having a limited range and a limited time um, where it's actually... Um, active and working in the world. So I said, no, it's also active and working in the world when we no longer see it. Um, in that, it operates more like water. Water is active and operating in our world, even in the air that I am breathing right now, but it isn't consolidated um, to become a solid or a liquid. Uh, so we forget that we are surrounded by water. So there's it's natural that we forget that we're saturated by policies past and present and future at all times, shaping our conditions. Um, the fact that I'm in a on stolen land and, 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 and that, that this building has been constructed to certain codes and in this particular architectural style and a whole lot of things besides are all me living in and surrounded by, imbued with, fed by policies. So I, so I wanted to explain that. So it just kept building on itself. Answer that question. Um, thanks, Tess. Uh, Ruth Barkin has a question for you. Uh, did you set out to think of policy as unruly in a deconstructive principle uh, to help us unthink it as rational and order? Or was that an empirical realisation that it is unruly based on the years of your fieldwork? The latter. Um, I think that I have also, well, not I think, I have also operated as somebody who has manipulated policy in its most high art, art, art artifactual forms. And I'd be, and I'm not dismissing um, black letter policy and the powers that it can have. Um, really proud of the Northern Territory's tobacco policy, um, which bans all smoking in public places in the Act and not in the regulations. David Ritter, you'll understand what I just said. Um, you know, unlike every other state legislation, which creates all the exceptions to smoking in the Act, what a pain in the ass um, to changing any of it. Anyway, so there are ways that you can approach policy really normatively and, and um, with a sense of technical prescription and do things in the world. So I'm not saying that that isn't the space to act, but I am also saying um, if you think that it's in the singular and that everything can be done right by just that one lever, you've already, you've already kind of given up the proper game. So it did come to me through fieldwork and ethnography and many, many, many years of inquiry. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you um, both. Uh, Leslie Head from Melbourne, I guess you're in, Les in Melbourne, Leslie, still. Um, congrats, Tess. 
interested to hear more about the writing process. How did you get from decades of swirling thoughts and experiences to a state of writing downhill? <laughs> oh, it's a very boring answer, um, Leslie. It was um, Velcroing myself to the chair <laughs> and um, writing and rewriting, coming back to it. Um, but to tell a more sort of joyous story, I wrote a book in the meantime called Darwin. And in that book called Darwin, um, which Pip McGuinness um, encouraged me to write, and I'll be grateful for her because she changed me. And that book changed me. It was permission to bring anthropological concepts and theoretical concepts to bear where you weren't able to use the normal academic scaffolds and the normal academic showcasing um, by saying, in this, I'm drawing on Donna Haraway and, you know, fancy word, fancy word, fancy word, fancy word, look at me showing off to my colleagues. Uh -huh. But take what Donna Haraway would want you to see and help and see it and then help others to see it by getting us to see something through the perspective, say, of um, the, the mourning cow as her calf has just been bludgeoned so that the herd can be moved on as it's been um, shepherded in a droving pack. Let, you know, so, so without saying, I'm doing Donna Howway now, you mm -hmm. do theory through another mechanism with a show-don't-tell mechanism and being, f being forced to unlearn um, how we might do analytical work through narrative form. I've, of course, been in, um, completely inspired by my colleagues, Elspeth and uh, Stephen Mewkey and others who've completely pioneered a way of narrating theory with lyricism, but the Darwin book broke my spine in a, in a good way. Um, and I then wanted to merge that back with some analytical heavy lifting in this book. Yeah. Um, Tess, no one's um, drawn attention to the extraordinary mappings and, and drawings as well that you, you think with and, um, Oh, that um, that critter you sent out that your mum asked you if you feel it like a hole in your heart that you didn't continue on drawing. Well, you are. Um, so can you talk a bit about how, how those different genres helped different media? Um, so it, in the original research, program that I set myself. I had two game aims. I, I mentioned one, which was to answer this deceptively simple question, which of course unravels. Um, can there be good policy? And the second one was, and provided that I could come up with any kind of answers, how might one communicate? Because I'd identified early on that packing good ideas into unreadable um, ethnographic monographs possibly wasn't the best way to talk to all of my people that I draw inspiration from. And that's the tradies and it's the folk and community and it's indigenous leadership and it's artists and it's a whole lot, you know, all distributed people who are differently literate and differently time poor. 
So at first I had a fantasy that you could do it through just a different media altogether, which is why I did help found the Carabing um, Indigenous Corporation. And yes, Jackie, you cannot be an entity recognisable in any way whatsoever unless you incorporate. So, we, you know, the state is sculpting you in right then and there. And I have a little section on that. Um, the, 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 the trickery of the 1800 number um, and the tax file number and blah, blah, blah. But actually, what I learned from that, really fantastic, but it's, it's also not true to think that you can do anything in one medium. So I'm now interested in mixing it up um, and to try and bring that more into my work, in, invite it more in. I had a second idea, which I haven't given up on, which, I think, which, I think, which is this, that I think that a good political cartoon is... I'm saying nothing new, can do five pages work of analytical <laughs> um, exegesis in the one, in the one thing. And um, I don't have a, um, that much of an ego to think that I can do that good political cartooning, but I would love to really work and create something graphic that cartoonized these concepts. So there's so little hints of that in here. Um, and maps, maps are a real cross-cultural register, it seems to me. Again, Indigenous people are foundational map makers and um, top survey experts. But maps also can do political work, of course. Map making um, was key to in, in, uh, settler claim making. So the battle to close off the Australian map from the early Dutch maps that were originally inherited um, was a battle to lay claim to Australia, which you could do by having mapped its contours fully. Like that was part of laying claim, you know, that has a strange legal provenance, map making. But maps can also do storytelling. And a shout out again to Liam and Kirsty who have collapsed a whole lot of work on the lack of um, regulatory <laughs> protection of safe drinking water for the majority of Indigenous people in the Northern Territory. So 70% of the places where Indigenous people live in the Northern Territory do not have any safe drinking water guaranteed by legislation. And that they prove that by showing this huge legal palimpsest. It's very complicated. It, it bore you to tears trying to understand, well, why is it and how is it? They collapsed all of that heavy empirical information and proofing into one map, and that map has done such profound political work to, so that for the first time in the Northern Territory since the election, there is now a Northern Territory Essential Services Minister. comes from that work. Power of the map. I just wanted to make a... Um, recently, I um, made the observation to a potential PhD student in architecture um, who was looking at a way of, I guess, doing a community study using, and I suggested using ethnographic technique. I'm a big fan of everything from auto to narrative to whatever ethnography. But um, what I realised as I was talking to her is that actually in engaging with ethnographic technique, we're engaging very actively with Indigenous research practice. Um, and that actually ethnography, and you've even talked about it in your book without naming it, 
um, that first piece that I was referring to uh, where John was like um, saying that he learnt by going out on the cattle drives and observing. I mean, this is, you know, observational practice, making notes and, and learning through experience, experiential learning is, of course, the way Indigenous people everywhere in the world largely share information and and then it's 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 visualized whether as um you know in all kinds of ways sand drawings the architecture people build the carvings on their buildings the you know the the note making the petroglyphs you know the my mother often says to me too that the petroglyphs in australia are, um many of them are actually dance moves the way she reads it and she's probably dead right the bradshaws up in you know the west so um Really what you're doing is you've, I, I would like to make an ethnographic observation, is that you've actually given yourself over to your own field and to the people that you've been absorbed. You've gone native. You've gone native, girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm taking it. Bad news. <laughs> Which is why I photographed your book up on a rock out in the bush today. But it, it really does have that feel. It feels Indigenous. And something I'm really pleased to see as, as an Indigenous scholar myself is non-Indigenous scholars, so-called, um, from the settler, whatever, <laughs> um, be, becoming Indigenized. I mean, we couldn't breed you all out. That wasn't going to happen. But we can sure as shit... Um, you know, incorporate you, which is a real black fella way of dealing with the world. So, um, but I like, I see it as a kind of, um, also a manifesto of a scholar. And Gillian Callishaw was absolutely embedded in the community she worked with. So good ethnographers, good anthropologists go native. So. Uh, oh, excellent. Yeah, anyway, That's that really excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, that reminds me though, to also mention, I mean, we mentioned John Singer at the start. He couldn't um, be part of this particular event today, but um, he's solidly with me and we're still working together. Um, that, that writing something that, I wasn't ashamed to share with John was also, so I think you're right, Jackie. I think I just had this because we were, I was collaborating all the way through and checking in with people and people who haven't read the book won't know, but there are some deeply sensitive parts to it. And I also had to get it checked by a defamation lawyer to make sure that I wasn't landing key people in jail for things they were telling me. So, and I held some things back. Um, because of all of that, which has also slowed down, it slowed down the book and I suffered a, a couple of career penalties for that as well. Um, but the, the, that, that dialogue, that dialogic process of co-creating um, and co-thinking, I think um, whilst I um, don't want to overclaim it, I will say that I was deeply influenced by how how to honour what, what different Indigenous leaders and people live through. Um, are there um, some final closing remarks from our panellists? I have one cheeky thing to say to Tess. Um, years ago, I heard you talking about um, you know, the, the pipes and the um electric lux um and one thing stuck stuck with me several things did but um you describe the kind of uh, treated 
boards they were using to build up in the NT as um, uh, crack for termites or white ants. And that sentence disappeared from the book. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, 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 um, yes. Well, you know, um, other things got popped in though. And, um, the, I was also trying not to, I guess what I was, okay, I don't have any excuses. I'm, make, I'm making it up. But um, what I will say is this, this is the other writing challenge because I can see that a few people have asked for, write, you know, some additional things about the actual policy ethnography. The other writing challenge was to um, pull, the other rug that I wanted to pull, if I was pulling rugs, was that desire for us to have a culprit, you know, show me the bad apple so that the system of crates and freight and consumption um, that otherwise is going apace can continue. So we've done our, and, and, and maybe um, the sacrifice of the CEO of BHP mm -hmm. um, does that work. So rather than doing the work of going back into the regular, the provenance, which gave them the entitlement the prerogative to desecrate and the weakening of the um, any of the protections the, and the narrowing of the times by in which people can actually lodge a protest, you know, the, the winnowing of that window down to a few short weeks, like seconds in the scheme of things, um, and even that is seen as too much red tape, that this kind of, that's why... I come back to the thing of almost like the state must be defended <laughs> um, to say we've got to reclaim this apparatus. We can't wish it away. I'm, 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 we've got it. Um, unless you want some kind of bloody revolution to create something I don't know what. But in the meantime, this thing that we have, it doesn't have to be as bad as it is currently. These mechanisms also have these, always have these alternatives working and operating at them pay attention pay attention to the small print pay attention and do that work as scholars we that's people often ask me how can you work with indigenous people do some of that labor do some of that reading labor and and translation labor and say the killer paragraph here that we've got to contest is this one you know buried in 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 clause number x on page number four six seven two um and and make that stuff easier that you know bring our skills to the table don't don't try and um that's that the burden of the otherwise thing you know oh just tell us just tell us the answer forgive us and tell us well we can do some hard work it's boring hard work sit in the archives do that work pull it together make it simple um lend those skills lend lend the right skills Anyway, I'll stop. I started getting manifesto-ish myself. No, that, that's probably a wonderful note to, to um, again, thank you to our panellists for, you know, absolutely engaging and interesting and provocative um, responses. And um, I'll leave... Tess to do her thank yous. I just want to mention that the book, as you will see um, on the chat, has a 30% discount from Stanford. Um, 
uh, Jess Keane says there was one copy left and booked. books. <laughs> um, but you know, bizarrely enough, books seem to be getting through fairly quickly. Um, so that's important. Um, and um, we will, um, well, we have to do a, has everyone got a glass of water? Or, um, I got a jug. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, heck, um, let's call while policy launched. Oh, girl. <laughs> um, well, this gave me the invitation to thank you all. I do thank you all from the bottom of my heart, especially um, I, people would have missed at the beginning. Elspeth poked me to say, well, come on. What are you doing about the launch? And I was like all abject with all being, you know, lockdown and COVID, etc. Um, and in and all the folk in GCS will know when Elspeth decides that something's going to happen, don't stand in the way, um, cooperate. And uh, because of her um, determination, um, and we have today's event, but also we have had some very generous readers um, who gave private time up. Thank you so much for reading my book and for speaking back to me um, and giving me new things to think with. I appreciate it so much. Um, and to all of you who've tolerated this online format uh, where you're silenced and um, just a bunch of heads unable to really interact, if I could see you all and if we could touch, I would love to touch, I would love to hug, I would love to air kiss. I would love to yarn over a glass of wine. I would love all of those things. So please, let's hold that out as a future possibility too. We can do that. And this has been recorded, so we can go over it. Um, uh, SEI will send out the link to everyone who registered. So thank you, Tess, and thank you, our wonderful panellists. Thank you, Genevieve, uh, for organising it, uh, as well as Ruth um, and... Ah, clap, clap, clap. <laughs>